Welcome to Reading the Room, a literary podcast featuring author interviews and discussions with bookish content creators. I am your host, Jalen, also known as The Bar in the Bookcase on YouTube. Today, I am incredibly excited and honored to say that Brandon Taylor has joined me on the podcast. He's one of my favorite writers, and this is something that I've been kind of hoping for secretly for years now. I am so thrilled to be a part of the release of his brand new novel, available today from Riverhead Books. It's called The Late Americans, and it is incredible. If you are unfamiliar with Brandon Taylor's work, he is also the author of the novel Real Life, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and also the story collection Filthy Animals, which was awarded the Story Prize. He is also an essayist and editor for Unnamed Press, and he also has one of the best Twitter accounts out there. The Late Americans Out Today marks Brandon's return with a deeply involving new novel of young men and women at a crossroads. In the shared and private spaces of Iowa City, a loose circle of lovers and friends encounter, confront, and provoke one another in a volatile year of self-discovery. It is a novel of friendship and chosen family, asking fresh questions about love and sex, ambition and precarity, and about how human beings can bruise one another while trying to find themselves. And finally, if you would like to support Reading the Room, the number one way to do so is to leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, or sharing it with friends, anyone who you think might like a literary fiction podcast such as this one. Aside from that, I also have a Patreon. Joining the Patreon gives you access to a bonus monthly episode of the podcast, which are chats with friends about literary discourse or other bookish topics. Also, you can receive access to my book club. I select a book each month, and you can join me near the end of every month on Zoom to discuss it with other Patreon members. If you miss it or cannot join, the book club recording will be uploaded to my YouTube channel so you never miss out. In June, we are reading Mating by Norman Rush, which won the National Book Award back in 1991, and I think will be a really interesting backlist title for us to dive into. Reading the Room is an independent podcast, so every member contributes to making this the best literary podcast it can possibly be. Thank you to all who have joined so far, and I look forward to meeting more of you at patreon.com slash reading the room, also linked in the episode notes. Let's get into the chat with Brandon Taylor. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So... I wanted to start and say that I've said this online before, but I'm going to say it again. I feel like real life was a very pivotal novel for me and just the timing of it all so interesting to me because I then started to try to think about literature more critically. And, you know, I, I read the novel right when it came out and then I discovered you and your Twitter and thus your criticism as well. And all this to say, you are a person who I am so fascinated by and you make me want to think about literature in a deeper and more intelligent way. And I just wanted to start there and just say thank you for your work and for coming on today. This truly means the world to me. I've been so excited about this. So thank you. Wow, that's so, well, I'm glad that my random ramblings had a positive effect in the birth of this wonderful podcast. Uh, thrilled, thrilled. That is the ideal result, I think. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm glad you enjoy the pod as well. And I mean, it's that's been like kind of the journey of this podcast is trying to reckon with my questions of myself and how I think about fiction and if I'm thinking about it in a way that is good or valid or you know all those kind of questions I guess and so or how I think about Brandon Taylor I guess is like the sort of triforce of like fiction writer critic and you know internet persona in a way um and just before I get into your new novel The Late Americans which I think captures so much of what I'm fascinated about with you is just first I know it's 2 p.m. your time. And I know recently on Twitter, you've been talking about how this is like the perfect time to have coffee. And so I wanted to know, are you caffeinated and, and ready or do you need coffee before we dive in? <laughs> you know, I just glugged uh, a big old cup of medium roast before I sprinted back uptown to the apartment to record. So I am I am caffeinated. Okay, sounds good. I am too. I'm going to need it like, you know, after this, but 
I'm a little bit earlier than you. So, um, but I love that. It's so funny and so necessary and important work <laughs> to making sure the people are caffeinated. <laughs> so I wanted to start with The Late Americans. So I finished the novel. I think it's incredible. I wanted to start by asking you if you consider it to be one, a polyphonic novel, but also do you feel like it is an extension from real life and filthy animals? Because I feel like in certain ways, it kind of feels like this amalgamation of work that you were doing in both of those novels while also, you know, forging forward new ground. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> polyphonic is an interesting um, word for it. I hadn't thought of that word in the context of this book, although books that uh, kind of inspired the approach are books that I would describe as polyphonic, like Canal Scarred's The Morning Star was incredibly important for me finally, like, cracking the shape of this book in a lot of ways. Um, and so maybe, maybe so. I mean, I the way that I think of it is as a relay race in that the each character sort of hands off the narration to the next character. And I feel like one of the things that um, really makes something a polyphonic novel is it feels somehow that it's like a group of voices orbiting one set of experiences or like one thing that is sort of looked at from different angles. And with the late Americans, it feels like the narrative focus like drifts more than I would normally think of as being in a polyphonic novel. And so like, I feel like the narrative center of this book kind of moves as the narrators move in some way. Um, and so I think, yeah, there, that's an available reading of the book, but I think for my own sort of weird structure brain, it feels like something more shifty than a traditional polyphonic novel. So to start, I was really, I was like laughing in the first like 20 pages of this book. The whole thing is funny as hell, but I was like, Seamus is really cooking his poetry peers like in the beginning of this book. And I think it's an interesting introduction. And I wanted to just start by asking you, like, how do you land on Seamus as a character as a start and why poetry as an entry yeah. point for this novel? Uh, well, I am glad that you were laughing. That was my biggest fear is that readers would enter into the book and be like, this guy is like horrible. I do not, uh, I do not want to be around him. Um, um, and in fact, my editor, my editor was like, maybe we should begin this novel with a different character. Like he's a lot like, you know, in the first chapter used to be like 100 pages long. And so he's like, has 100 pages of like a very tough character. Um, and I was like, no, I feel like it really does have to begin with him. Um, and part of why poetry is um, I was once in an MFA program myself and I was not having a great time. And it seems strange that you got all these people together who had so much in common, meaning like they loved books and they loved literature. And yet, you know, and that might have brought them together if they had encountered each other out in the wild of the world, but instead they encountered each other like in this program. And so um, you had people who were very, very similar, who were at each other's throats. Like in my program, there were these two guys with literally the same first name, they were roughly the same age. They had grown up in the same state around the same city. And there was so much about them that like was the same and yet they could not stand each other. And I found that so fascinating. And so I wanted to write about that as well as a lot of the, what felt like facile ideas in art and literature that were sort of pulsing through the program. And so I was like, someone, I should write like a very cranky poet. I should write like a very cranky poet because if I do a fiction writer, they'll, they'll all feel really smug or like attacked. And so I, I chose poetry because fiction writers in my program didn't really know <laughs> what was going on in poetry. And so that's how I landed on Seamus really is like an attempt to figure out like 
I don't know, like, what is it, like, what happens when you care about something so much that you stake your life on it, and then you go to a program to study it, and then you find out that all of your classmates are kindergartners in the mind, like, what, like, that's a very particular kind of frustration that I was after. This comes later in the book, but also, I think this is in chapter eight, but there's a quote that says, the fiction writers are always going around projecting a self onto the world, and, you know, using third person narration and many characters and my natural inclination and I think many of the students here is trying to figure out the self behind the person that created the art that you're consuming, right? And I guess my question is about how how you went about kind of inserting critical ideas. And I guess I'm getting ahead of myself to your perspective as a critic and tying that into your fiction and how you kind of view character as a mechanism for kind of in exploring your ideas about art on the page. I think that's a great question. And it ties to the second part of your very, very first question, which is that when I set out to write this book, I was trying to like acquire the ability to write characters who had like an inner life. Like I felt like the, the two books I'd written previously, you know, like those characters were so driven by my own personality and they were driven by my own, I guess, interiority. And something that I really admired in like the novels of Henry James and Edith Wharton is that those characters have their own ideas about the world that are distinct from Wharton and James. And I was just like, how do you do that? Like, how do you write a character with an imagination or like a critical faculty? Like I have no sense of how to do that as a writer. Um, and it, and I was really stuck on that until I read Garth Greenwald's short story, The Frog King. Um, I was in a room where he read it for the first time. And it was the first time anyone had ever sort of experienced that story and he read it. And there's this long passage where like a character is like looking at a painting and like thinking about a painting. And there was something about hearing Garth reading that, that just like really clicked into place for me. I was like, oh, that's how you do it. Like, that's one way that you can do it is like, you can dramatize like the act of seeing and you can use that to create a space for the character's interiority to turn over ideas about art and the world. And it occurred to me that I had been doing that all along, but the only thing that my characters would think about was like their own biography, <laughs> like they didn't think about the world. Um, and, and so I feel like I, in that moment, figured out a technique I could use to then um, smuggle in ideas about art and culture and, and criticism. And I was sort of off to the races from that standpoint. And that's the one thing that I was most trying to do in this book was to write characters who, yeah, could like, talk about what a fiction writer in a program is like thinking and doing like a certain attitudinal um, postures and to dramatize a cranky writing students uh, con contempt for certain postures of art that were distinct from my own feelings that felt really important also that I would write characters who had very different feelings about art than I did. Um, like there was a, there's a part of this book that I ended up not putting in, but there's a painter, his name is Stafford. And I wrote like a whole chapter about how he hates Degas. And of course I love Degas. And so, it, I don't know, like one, I feel like once I found out how to write a character's opinions about art, it really, it really is sort of like cemented a thing for me. And I was like, oh, that's how you do it. Like that is what you do. You just like dramatize them being cranky and talking about art they don't like. Um, and I guess it's fitting that my way end what my way in was like fight writing about something a character hated. <laughs> writing hateration as character development. Queer people, you know, being in love, having sex, and then now thinking about <laughs> art and kind of putting it all in a blender. And it's just so fun as for me as a reader, like whenever a novel 
comments on art or form or any of those questions, it's so fun for me to grapple with like what that's doing. And I, so I me personally, I just love that in fiction, but I guess kind of extending from that and the title of this novel, the late Americans, I think this novel is really considering and maybe you disagree with this, but how I wrote this down was like the macro versus micro. So there's some, you know, interjections or some reflections on like capitalism, systemic issues versus, you know, localized cruelty within one, the friends dynamics, and then also just the making of art as we're already speaking about. And so I wanted to ask you about how you landed on the title and how you were reflecting on those ideas, those big ideas with a very granular focus with these relationships. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't disagree, actually. I do think that the book is like permeated by these tensions between macro versus micro. And I think even within the context of a single character's life, like you have characters who have these like capital P politics and, you know, they consider themselves capital S socialists. And then they're like really cruel to their boyfriends. <laughs> like there's just um, that difference between like a lived politic and like a politic you talk about in grad school seminars. Um, and I find that endlessly fascinating. I, I, I could write, I feel like all my books are sort of about that disconnect sometimes. And to, I get, but I guess like to answer your question, more directly the title came really early on actually in the process because i was i was wanting to write about um as i said like certain received ideas about art and it was a period of time when there was like a lot of censoriousness like a lot of like cultural paranoia around like identity and race and people sort of self-policing themselves. And I just found that all that so boring. And it got to a point where it felt like this the creative spaces I was in were becoming so progressive that they were sort of looping back around into like race science. <laughs> um, and like a very sort of 19th century adjacent like pseudoscience of like sociology. And I found it all so bad. People would be like, oh, but like, you know, this character is black. So like his his deep ancestral wounds. And I'm like, what if that character doesn't have any deep ancestral wounds? <laughs> like I don't. Um, and so just sort of looking out over the culture at the moment when I was writing this, which I, I think I, I started and finished it in 2019, it just felt like a lot of things were coming to a head. Um, and I wanted to write about that, not only the the collision between like, everyday contemporary American life and like, quote unquote, like late capitalism, but like all of our, all the scripts that we were living by and that like very heightened, seem like very false moment of like public discourse. Um, and I was like, you know, what summarizes that is like the late Americans, like that is what we are in this like really horrible pastiche of like a progressive society. And that's really where the title came from. Also, it comes from like, I really love Henry James. And I was like, Henry James already wrote The American. There's no better title than that. But I was like, but the late Americans, I can update it and do my own, my own take. And so the book starts as, Seamus's like really paranoid, irritated idea of like what he considers the quote unquote late Americans. And then I feel like as the book goes on, that idea evolves and changes as each character has their own take on like society, but also like their own individual places in society. And so the book, the idea of the late Americans gets recast again and again, depending on who's looking. Starting with him, and then he's not even present, you know, in the final chapter. And I guess this is maybe just a technical form question, but I'm wondering, you know, when we meet Noah, who then suffers a lot of, you know, cruelty and violence against him, um, he kind of, to me, feels like a particular core of this book. But I'm just wondering how you know when a particular character and their story 
ends in a novel that's so interestingly structured that kind of feels like a collection but but it's a novel yeah i think um when i was writing them i was initially i started thinking of them as stories but very quickly i realized that they were more like episodes um they're more like episodes and and yeah and so like Seamus came first and then I wrote Theodore's chapter and in Theodore's chapter originally Theodore has this boyfriend his name is Timo he's like terrible in like a really delightful way that I enjoy personally but not a lot of people feel that way um and throughout the first draft of that Theodore chapter Timo was for, referred to again and again as like Theodore's boyfriend. He didn't even have a name. And then I reached the end of that chapter and I was like, well, I'm kind of, I feel like I, I feel like there's more juice in this world. And so then I was like, what if like Theodore's boyfriend had a name and then I could like write his episode. And then I, you know, in that, that episode introduces Yvonne, who's like this pornographer slash former dancer slash MBA student. Um, and I, I really loved him. And then he had this friend named Noah. And really, like, each section introduced me to the next character. And then I sort of got, as I often do, stuck in the swirl of dancers. I feel like once a dancer enters one of my stories, like, it's just, that is all I am interested in. And so I got stuck orbiting this group of people who had more in common. And so then the challenge of the book became how to make the sequence make sense like what is the what is the bridge from Seamus to Theodore like that was the hardest gap because those two people like Seamus is like a poetry student Theodore works in a meatpacking plant and those two people have nothing those two characters have nothing in common and I was like what is the bridge here and the bridge is like like Seamus like runs into him like in <laughs> the Foxhead bar and I was like, oh yeah, there are these like places where, you know, the the students and the people who just live there meet. And it's often the grocery store, the bar, <laughs> the, the public library sometimes um, and things like that. Um, and so then it was like a fun game to figure out which episodes would lead to the next and how to establish and maintain a rhythm of narrative. But really, as I was writing it, I was just letting each character lead me to the next. And that became a lot of fun. Yeah, it's so fun for me as a reader as well, trying to see like where the next thread's going to go, you know, and all of this that you're speaking about and how you're thinking about character and structure and connecting them together. One of your topics of criticism that I'm really interested in is realism generally. And I'm just wondering in terms of, you know, you being on your third book now and your thoughts about realism as tied to character, has that shifted since real life and like new books that you're working on now or has it kind of remained like a fundamental aspect of you as a novelist? Yeah, I am like a hard-coded realist. Um, I, <laughs> um, I knew that from jump. Uh, when I got to grad school, there are people who are not hard-coded. There are people who are writing realism, but I like look at their work and look at my work and be like, oh, there is, there is a difference in our dedication to realism. <laughs> um, but it's also strange as someone who can like I consider myself like a deeply hard-coded realist, but sometimes I would submit things to workshop and people would tell me like, this isn't realism, this has a ghost in it. And I was like, well, I'm from Alabama. Like we have ghosts. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like my, and, you know, my friend Pam, Pam Zhang, uh, who wrote How Much of These Hills is Gold, Gold, had to explain it to me. She's like, well, Brandon, like, there's like white people realism. And then there's like 
our realism and like those two realisms are not the same um and yeah and so I, I do consider myself like a realist I very much consider myself a realist and and both my mode and I think a lot of times also my subject and my and my idiom I think when I wrote real life like real life was the kind of book that I I mean I I wrote it but I wrote it like really reluctantly and I didn't want to write about my life really like I didn't want to write about the kind of life that I had led or had um and so I tried to keep all that stuff out of that book and it crept in a little bit here or there I think Filthy Animals ironically has some stories that are like so deeply from my life that it's like actually kind of uncomfortable to think about them but with this book this book felt I mean like this book the realism felt like it was at more of a remove and I felt like I had much more of a mastery of it I felt like I understood what you could and could not do in realism here and I I had this idea that realism is just like realism is just a reality that you commit to <laughs> like it like it it sometimes corresponds to like reality as we live it in this reality and sometimes it doesn't but realism is just like any reality that is internally coherent that you commit to like anything in a story is realism as long as you commit to it and it feels internally coherent even if they're talking animals um and so I guess in some ways as I've matured as a writer I feel less dependent on external definitions of what realism is to for my own personal utilization of realism as a mode or or genre or form in terms of that too like when you're crafting and revising and as you mentioned working with an editor like when do you know a novel like this is done <laughs> that is a great question um normally normally i know it's done i have an infallible sense of when I am done working on a book because the book is done. Like I'm like, that's the end. Boom. Nailed it. Crushed it. I did what I came to do. Send it out to be copy edited. Um, and then I'll make changes and I'll revise and revise, but I'm not one of these people who like slavishly revises. I, I have a sense of when a book is done and it is almost like it, like it's never unclear to me. Um, this book was not like that. This book, uh, ruined my life in many ways. And it was very challenging and it was very hard. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that my idea of what a novel is, I think of it as like a capital N novel, like in the sort of Jamesian, Wartonian, um, Austinian sense of a novel. And I was like, a novel isn't just a bunch of episodes you staple in one book and call it a day. Like I, I was like, I don't want to write one of these like weird, wistful, fragmentary books that just are not novels that people call novels because of prize considerations and my editor's like Brandon like the novel is a very fluid term and I was like not to me it's not <laughs> um and so there's a lot of like fighting myself about this book a lot of fighting myself a lot of fighting the book and there's a lot of going back and forth and back and forth and and at one point I stopped writing for just like 10 months and became a photographer because I just like could not face it and so I really needed to be talked around to this book as a thing that should exist and then as a novel and even after all of my interventions into it after i'd revised it a million times my editor is like i think it's done it's really it's done and i was like are you sure um and i mean 
when we sold the UK rights to this book, I was fully in calls with editors and they were talking about this book. And I was just like, are you sure this is done? like completely incomprehensible? Like it was very late in the day for me to still be like, is this book? Um, and I feel like I'm going to open up a box of the finished hardcovers and still be kind of like, are we sure? Are we, are we certain? Um, I just feel like this book, I'm not certain at all about it. Um, I'm just grateful that I survived it um, and that there is a book that is in order that seems to work for some people. So a couple of things on what you were just mentioning. The first one being, I remember your photography era on Instagram. And <laughs> it, it's interesting to know like what was going on behind that. But, um, you know, thinking about the novel as a finished product and something that I have been grappling with recently, just on a personal level with this podcast and Seamus is thinking about a lot in this book is just this idea of like validation around creation and what that means. And so I'm wondering if you would like to speak on this idea of, I guess, particularly as a novelist, you know, being open, being a critic yourself, but then also, you know, having a published work out and then having it necessarily be consumed by others and spoken about by others and being online, I think you naturally kind of are exposed to ideas about around your work that you might not even want to be seeing. I'm just curious how you think about, you know, being public on that front and thinking about your art as a finished product. Yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of this book um, probably comes out of that. I, I started this book after, after I'd sold real life and filthy animals while I was, while I was still in grad school, which big mistake, never do that. Um, and I was watching my dream come true, but also watching my art and myself become a commodity that had this like external, that had like this external manifestation that I had no control over. That was just like people's opinions about me. And that was very strange. This idea that my identity and the Freudian sense of like my inner self and also identity in the sense of like external, like race and ethnicity and nationality categories, like be commodified in ways that I found actually deeply damaging and self-estranging. And so that was happening as I was writing this book and the book became a way to think through some of that, the the wages of the artistic life and the, the self-expressive life. You know, when real life came out, I think a big part of the struggle of this book was, you know, when real life came out and we announced the book deal for this book, this very prominent American critic got on Twitter and like, took my screenshot of my book deal announcement and tweeted it out and said, I guess we're still doing this crap. Does the world need this? And it turned into like this whole thing. And it was like literally like half a sentence about what this book was even about. And he was already sort of slamming it and saying that we don't need more books about whatever he thought he was talking about. And it really got in my head and it made me question like, well, does the world need more books about art? Like, does the world need more, another book set in Iowa City, I guess? Um, and yeah, and so that really got in my head and was really damaging and it took me on a long journey. But I think where I've landed with all of this stuff is, you know, like you could publish something and it could win the Pulitzer Prize and a Nobel Prize and five National Book Awards, and you could be like the king of the literary world. And you could still open your Word doc the next morning and be like totally <laughs> flattened by the, the process, right? Like, you know, and inviting a bunch of people and their opinions into your artistic process does not make it easier. It does not. It simply does not make that any easier. 
And so I just try to keep a healthy remove between those things. It's like, I write something and it goes into the world and if people like it, that's great. If they don't like it, that's also great. That is their business. That's not my business. Um, I don't seek out other people's opinions of my art and I try not to let their opinions, good or negative, influence how I go about my job. Um, and my job is to create art and to write things that interest me. And I try to focus on that. I try to make stuff that if I were to encounter it, I would find interesting or moving or upsetting or vexing. <laughs> uh, some of my favorite books are books that vex me. Um, and I feel like I'm trying to write something that would vex me. <laughs> That's my goal at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, I, I always feel like it's healthy to make the thing that powers your work, your own hunger and your own like inquiry and your own interests and your own thoughts and to, you know, let people have their feelings. That's why I don't like go barging into people's comments when they like radically misread my work or whatever. I'm like, that's great. You got that out of it. Congratulations. Super duper. I already did my part. I'm not going to rewrite this book. <laughs> like it's out there. Yeah. I, yeah. Because I, you know, I've experienced internalizing other people's opinions about my work and it weirdly enough does not make it better or make me feel good so i just don't <laughs> don't do it yeah no i mean it makes complete sense and there's this one the passage from the book that i pulled out that's one of my favorites and i'll just read it really quickly it's pretty brief but as they tussled over his poem he understood something he had not understood before that the more right something felt to him the less it truly did have to do with how it felt to others he had been foolishly and childishly trying to convince the world that he was right when it should have been enough for him to believe it himself that was the fault of pride and first of all I just love your prose and how you write. <laughs> like I, I was like smitten while reading this book, just like from, I don't know, an experiential level of enjoying your prose. But um, I just thought that sp spoke to what you were just mentioning. I guess going from there, I'm, I'm wondering in terms of, you know, having a Substack as well, how that differs in your brain or not from writing fiction. Like does criticism come to you in an easier way or does it feel difficult? <laughs> well, the thing to know about me is that I'm like deeply lazy and I don't do things that are hard. I anything that's like hard, I'm just like, I'm not doing that. Um, and every time I've tried to write something that I have not enjoyed writing, it, it's always like this was a mistake, never doing this again. Nonfiction to me, you know, nonfiction is not a thing that comes easily to me i i am much more comfortable as a fiction writer my default mode is fiction particularly the short story like that's where i feel like i have something to say um with nonfiction, it's like <laughs> nonfiction is great though because it's like it's like yelling in a room but you can't hear yourself like i have no idea what i sound like as a nonfiction writer like i have no sense of like what my arguments are, if they're sound or not. Like I just have no capacity to perceive myself as a nonfiction writer. Um, and so that that can be therapeutic. It's like yelling in a sensory deprivation tank. Um, and, but it is harder. I, I also find it less pleasant and harder than writing, um, than writing fiction. But the substack to me feels like a different faculty in some way, because with that, I'm not even trying. I'm like, these are just, thoughts on a page and it's barely a page it's like a it's a word processor these are just my google doc thoughts they're not even real thoughts these are my sans serif aerial font thoughts i don't know but i like this subject because it gives me a space to practice thinking and to sort of try on ideas in a way that is like less rigorous i think than my fiction and so a lot of ideas first find vent in the newsletter or in a piece of criticism i've written for an outlet and then it 
I find that I, I turn it over more, I guess, like rigorously and like more interestingly to me, like in fiction. And so, yeah, the, the nonfiction is nice as a, as a parallel track to try on different ideas. Um, but it is not my main, it is not my main love interest. It is, <laughs> it is brutal and painful <laughs> sometimes. Well, I, I love, you know, whenever you post a new one, it's like, I have a perfect thing to read at lunch. Like, I, I love it. I look forward <laughs> to it. So um, I guess stemming from that too, you know, your background in science, and I've been thinking about why on this podcast, or just when I think about novels, I'm always drawn to like form questions or structure. And I'm wondering if like our backgrounds in in science and law, I mean, law is explored briefly in this book, which I, I loved, you know, <laughs> when I was discussed there. Um, do you agree with that as like maybe something that's informing the way that you think about fiction? I think so. I mean, I also, when I set out to write my first novel, I approached it mechanistically. I approached it like, you know, because I had tried and failed to write it, I feel like from the art side, like I was like, I'm just going to feel the muse and it's going to move me and I'm going to write a, a, a stack of like beautiful pages. And it just like didn't work. Um, I was like, that is not how my brain works. I'm going to treat this like I treat all my problems, which is like a large problem that I'm going to design a system of inquiry around. And then I'm going to do it in a stepwise mechanistic fashion. And that is how I wrote real life. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to divide it up. I'm going to do this and do this. I'm going to make a list of things I want. Like it was very systematic and got it done, got it done. And I, I feel like now my approach is like much more of a hybrid approach, but I mean, you can ask my students, I am all about structure and form. I am all about, you know, one of the first things I ask them is like, how long do you imagine this novel being that you are writing? Do you have some sense of that? Do you know how long, how much time takes place across the shape of this narrative? Why, let's talk about why this scene is five pages too short. Like I am, I am like in there thinking about form and thinking about shape. And, and, and I think, yeah, that comes from, you know, a lot of, I feel like getting a PhD in biochemistry and maybe even going to law school is really just like getting a degree in project management. <laughs> You're just like breaking large tasks into smaller tasks and processing bits of information and, and you know, chunks and stuff like that. Um, but I love form. I think form is really, really important. And I always think of myself as like a very boring writer, but one of my friends once told me like, Brandon, none of your books have normal forms. Like all your books have these like weird forms. And I was like, well, like, yeah, but they're like really simple. If you think about them, like there's like this and this, and they go together and it flows. And he's like, no, <laughs> only you would think that. That is so funny. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think it at least calls, you know, attention to, to form. That's why I'm always so intrigued when I pick up a new book of yours. Like, I'm, I'm always curious what you're going to be doing on that front. And it's always surprising. And I always love that. And this next question is about a particular Substack essay that you wrote. That's one of my favorites ever. I've revisited it like many times now. Um, and it's about internet novels as gothic literature. I, I uh... love that piece. It's so fun to me. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because I feel like maybe I'm wrong in this conclusion, but I feel like the internet novel... I haven't really seen many new ones being published of late. And I, I guess I just wanted to ask you about that essay and whether your thoughts, you know, kind of remain the same and just about Fiedler, the critic. Um, I still need to read him. And I just wanted to ask you about like a, a place to start with him and all of that, mm. basically. <laughs> Are you saying that I kill the internet novel? Look, I mean, look <laughs> well, at the material. Yeah. <laughs> look at the material. They have not, they've, they haven't been doing it like they used to. What's that about? Um... <laughs> 
I yeah that idea for that newsletter came from like a very random place where I was just like reading you know I was reading Bruce Lockwood and reading Lauren Euler and I was reading Leslie Fiedler and and I had just finished reading um I think it was the House of Mirth and I was like yeah all these books are kind of the same like the House of Mirth is a gothic novel and I was like but then if those other two books are like the house of birth, are those internet novels, the Gothic novel as well? And I was like, no, they are, they absolutely are. Um, and it, you know, that, that conception of like the Gothic comes out of Fiedler's. I was, re I had finished reading his love and death in the American novel where he lays out this incredible read of the Gothic novel and particularly like the American Gothic novel. And if you like look at the hallmarks that he describes in there, which is like an innocent who's like fleeing from modern day into a, a sort of hyper stylized like pro psychic projection of the past and they're trying to negotiate these like fraught things and they're being pursued by something that's big and monstrous and um and in the end you have to like resolve all of these like tensions I was like that is that is the internet novel the internet becoming like a gothic space <laughs> that represents like the worst parts of mankind and and yeah and so i feel like fiedler is really fiedler is really to me like the key to understanding so much of contemporary literature um he is one of my favorite critics i think i've read um not even half of his books and i've read like 10 of them like he's written so many books um he, i think you know he was really important critic in like the 70s and 80s and 90s but now he's kind of out of fashion because we kind of don't really read criticism anymore like that that whole genre of like criticism cultural books that tell us something about our like the culture like crit lit crit as pop culture criticism has just sort of like disappeared as a genre in the last 30 or so years which i find very strange um but i think love and death in the american novel is a phenomenal book it is a bit long and it is a bit heavy on the lit side but a book like what was literature is like so smart and so engaging and i feel like what was literature so accurately describes how we arrived at this moment of like genre versus capital l literature and like you know this false dichotomy of high low like he's totally he's totally there before so much of the world even arrives at the argument like he is he has seen the answer before we even know that there's an argument being waged on this plane. So every time there's like a, a genre kerfuffle on Twitter, I just want to be like, you guys need to read what was literature. Like you guys gotta catch up, catch up to Fiedler in like 1987 or something. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, personally, I've been really preoccupied with this question of like why I'm drawn to quote unquote literary fiction or like what those dividing lines are or or are not, I guess. And I see behind you a romantic comedy by Kurt Curtis Sittenfeld and I recently oh. read it. And I loved it, but I was just recently thinking about just like romance as a genre, which is something I don't typically read, but I loved the book so much. And so I don't know if you want to talk about that. I, romance novels were the first books I, I ever read. Um, I taught myself to read by reading romance novels. I feel like that is the the kind of book I've read most of in my life are romance novels. I still love a good romance from time to time when I'm feel when I have like bronchitis or something, I'll just like read a romance novel to feel better. I love the romance novel. And the romance novel is like interesting as a place for like these ideas about what genre is and isn't, like this high-low idea, like the sort of particular animosity in our contemporary culture toward romance novels has been with us at least since like Nathaniel Hawthorne. Like there's like this incredible quote where Nathaniel Hawthorne was like writing at the same time as like all these like women sentimental novelists. And he said something like, we're a nation of cursed damn female scribblers or something like that. And so like this idea of like, 
women writing these kinds of books that are like commercially quite successful and like very huge being a thing that is like derided by the sort of elite gatekeepers is like have been with us from the very beginning like Nathaniel Hawthorne was complaining about this which is delightful but it's also interesting because I think that you know the romance novel descends from the sentimental novel but so does every other bourgeois novel so the sort of contemporary literary fiction novel also comes from that template of the bourgeois novel and like so like how is it that we arrived at this place when like literary novels that most people write and romance novels like they share a progenitor <laughs> like they come from the same set of like bourgeois values and like it's the it's the same it's the same kind of book and i feel like the place where that distinction is thinnest is actually in the multi-generational family saga like if you look at like sweeping family sagas and if you look at a romance novel like they are kind of the same in their execution of tropes often in the prose style often in the the sort of values that drive it like they are the same like the the distinction between literary and genre is thinnest i think in the family saga and i think the family saga shows its lineage as descending from the sentimental novel like more than any other kind of contemporary genre which is like deeply fascinating to me which is maybe a, a subject for a different newsletter but i i love romance novels i think they're really fun curtis's book romantic comedy is so delightful and i think one thing i mean this is sort of silly romance novels don't need defending obviously because like why is falling in love considered like an uninteresting topic but that people often sort of dismiss Curtis as like a quote unquote, not serious writer, but like her writing is, she's like deeply smart and like her books are technically faultless. There are, her books are at the level of technique, structure and form, they are faultless. And I think a lot of people forget she went to Iowa. <laughs> she has an MFA from Iowa. She is like a real writer. Not that romance novelists aren't real writers, but a real writer in this sort of dumb idiom of like literary with a capital L. Like she, she's she's a real, she's one of our best technicians. I think I'd put her up there with Ann Patchett. And I don't say that lightly because Ann Patchett is our greatest formalist. She is a genius. So yeah, Commonwealth is a novel that I keep thinking about but that book is just like I know you love it too it's so good it's ridiculous actually like how that book works I don't understand it I need to reread it but no it should be three in anyone else's hands it would be 300 pages longer like, it, people don't understand Commonwealth is a magic trick of a novel yeah and I mean even going to romantic comedy like it's been a long time since I read a book that like I inhaled that quickly like so so fast it was a really like weird experience uh thinking about how she did it in the interesting structure, like the epistolary section, which I loved. Yeah, yeah it just it works normally, so well. Listen, normally I see emails in a book, I skip. I'm like, I'm not reading that. This, I was like, yes. And then what did he say? What did he say? And then I, there are moments where I felt viscerally tense waiting for the response. Like she, yeah, that book slaps. That book is delightful. I also read it in like 10 hours. It was so good. Yeah, yeah. I had to talk to you about it because you actually made me pick it up. Um, oh, so, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was excellent. It's my only one I've read by her, so I need to, you know, go back and read the others. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, she is. She has written one of the best Pride and Prejudice retellings ever. Eligible. It's like Pride and Prejudice, but The Bachelor. Like, what more is there to love? It's so, oh, it's so good. You know, Brandon, too, one thing I wanted to ask you about is my lack of reading within like classics like I haven't really read Jane Austen I haven't read Edith Wharton like I feel like I'm sleeping significantly and I need to like make it a like a project of mine to make sure I get it done just because with the pod now I'm like constantly reading new stuff but I feel like I'm 
missing a lot? Well, I mean, I feel complicated about that because I didn't read the class. I mean, I, I, I was a chemistry major. I did not read uh, literature. I didn't really read for school. Yeah, I mean, reading Jane Austen, I bounced off of Jane Austen like the first three times I tried to read her, like in high school and in college. Uh, same with Edith Wharton. Um, but then when I was working in a lab at night, I had all this time where I, I was just like awake at 3 a.m. doing experiments. And I started listening to like audiobooks of like the classics and like really fell in love with them. And now I'm just like always rereading uh, classic literature. There's something that has been lost, I think, across the centuries, one might say. There is something that is like present in the novels of like Jane Austen and Henry James and Edith Wharton and writers of that that particular tradition that we just like don't have today. And sometimes when I'm reading a contemporary novel, I can tell that the writer is not afraid that someone's going to read their book after having read a 19th century novel. Like you can tell that they are not afraid that the person reading that book has read like Moby Dick or Anna Karenina. Like they, they simply do not have that fear and they should they should have a fear because very often you know like there are a few books I reviewed last year I'm not going to name them but there are books that I reviewed last year that were like trying to be pastiches of like 19th century literature that were set in the 19th century and I was reading those books after having recently reread Portrait of a Lady because I did an introduction for it and I was just like why does Henry James feel more contemporary than this contemporary novel like what like what is what are you doing um and yeah there are a lot of books that I feel like are very popular right now that were published recently that would not be popular if more people had read 19th century literature let's say um I think <laughs> I think yeah but you know that's how I feel I I my life would not be the same if had I not read James or Wharton or Austin I think that there are things that those books offer that our contemporary books just like do not offer because of differences in the way the world works and operates. Like, for example, narrators in contemporary novels have no capacity for explanation. They can't tell you about different types of guy who exists, like because the narrators are so tightly focused to one interiority. And that interiority is of like a 25 year old who has never read a book. Like, like it is, it's very, the, the contemporary narrator is like a construct is just lacking in so many aspects. Um, and so I think, yeah, people should read James. I think Portrait of a Lady is great, but I think, you know, that's the great James novel, but then The Bostonians is like really funny or The American, which is like a silly little confection of a novel, like a perfect little confection of a novel that's like a gauche American goes abroad and like gets kind of gets scammed into marrying a hot French lady. Like it's delightful, right? And then there's Edith Wharton and people think of Wharton as being like very fusty, but she wrote some of the best novels about Thoughton and Boppin, you know, like House of Mirth is about a lady who like keeps being kind of slutty and like tries to find a husband, but then can't. Like it's a great novel. Um, and so I think the classics, I think because of school, perhaps people view the classics as, as being very intimidating or very forbidding. Like Anna Karenina is like a million pages long, but that, that book moves. That book is so fast and it's so delightful. And so I, I always say like, you know, I wish more people felt free to encounter the classics on their own terms um, because they have so much to offer us and they're so delightful. And they're so much funnier than we could ever imagine. They're so, so good. So, and if you're reluctant like I once was, find yourself the Juliet Stevenson audiobook of whatever classic you want to read, because she will get you there. She is <laughs> the greatest narrator of all time. Um, and she's read a lot of the audiobooks. So, you know, 
And if you're wanting to get into Austin, I think Sense and Sensibility is like the one that will get you in there because it is funny and it is nuts and it is delightful. I mean, Juliet Stevenson, the one the one classic, big classic that I've read that I absolutely adored last year was Middlemarch. And I listened to the mm. audiobook with her narration. And that book, like I'm even thinking about that book also with a more modern classic, I guess, or Iris Murdoch's A Severed Head. That book, like it, it's interesting reading those novels because they feel so fundamentally like different to me as a reader than what I'm like more contemporary fiction. And I've been trying to, I need to read more to have more like articulate thoughts about what's going on there for me personally, but it's just, they're so fun to read, which was really surprising to me, you know? Yeah, no, it is. It is. I'm also rereading Middlemarch at the moment. Um, I'm working on a book that's like trying to borrow from Middlemarch and like that book is also delightful and hilarious. I'm at the part where they go see Cos Bun's house for the first time. <laughs> and Celia is just like, you want you want my sister to live here? Here? Mm -hmm. This is the most depressing place I've ever seen. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Oh, Middlemarch. What a bop. Middlemarch is a bop. It really is. It really, really is. And just like how it's narrated. Yeah, not to go into a full Middlemarch rant, but so first I just want to ask you about press generally and being, I don't know, a quite popular online author. Um, what that feels like to be talking about your work and coming on a podcast such as this, like how do you feel about doing press now that you're on your third novel um, or third book? And has it changed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's changed a lot, honestly. You know, with my first book, it was like giddy excitement, but also like, ooh, I don't want to get canceled. I have to like watch what I say, you know? And so there was a lot of like trying to be careful. And also like as a black writer, like I'm very much aware of like these pre-existing like scripts that I get put into if I'm not careful. And so like with the early press for real life, I was like really hyper fixated on making sure that they didn't talk about me a certain way so that I wouldn't get called like an identity profiteer, basically. Um, I had a real allergy to that. And so that that was a very high stakes situation. And then with Filthy Animals, the second book, um, I that book meant more to me than real life did because it was short stories. It was the thing that I cared about most in the world. And I was just like so determined to like show up for that book in a way that I felt like I kind of couldn't show up as much for real life because of the pandemic and also being really ill during the second half of that press tour. And so there's a lot of anxiety and stress there. And with this book, I feel like I don't really care. Like I, it's, I care about the book. The book matters to me quite a lot, but I, I, it doesn't feel as urgent to me because I know that I, I am an artist and I know that I'm going, I mean, I already have another book under contract after this one and I'm working on like five other books that I have all this other stuff. And so there simply is not time for me to be freaking out and anxious. And I feel like, I feel like also like I have established myself. I've like proven myself. Like nobody's reading this book being like, oh, Brandon Taylor can't write prose. Like that's sort of the, the assumption they're going in with. And so like, I'm not having to prove myself that I can write well. It's more, can you write a book that's interesting and compelling? And I feel like that is going to be the challenge for me moving forward is not so much, is he a writer? Like, he's a writer, but like, is he writing stuff that is alive and interesting and like, a, you know, interested in the world we live in? Um, and so the press, I feel like my priorities have shifted um, and also the way that the press approaches me is like shifted. And so it feels more... I, don't know, I feel more relaxed about it. I feel like I can show up as myself more because I'm not having to like manage their expectations as much because I've already, I've already done that for two press cycles. But this one, I don't know. I'm just 
older, wiser, and perhaps more cynical than I was before. Last question for you, and I have like a tiny fun question, but just any like book recommendations, anything you're reading right now, it could be tailored to me if you would like. Um, I'm curious, but <laughs> and then the last question is, who are you rooting for for Drag Race if you're watching it this season? Because tonight's the uh, finale. So mm-hmm. th- let's go there. <laughs> what I'm reading right now, um, I'm reading all of the novels of Emile Zola. Um, he wrote this cycle of novels called the Rougon Macar novels, which are about a family in like Napoleonic France. And so I'm reading all of them. I am on book 14 of 20. Um, so I'm really cooking. I'm almost there. I am almost I could see the light at the end of the tunnel um but the book that I'm like really just like cackling at on the subway is this book called the 30 years war by um I forget she's got one of these initials names but her last name is Wedgwood and it's just like a history of the 30 years war and it's so good it's so funny it's so topical um because that's the other thing I do I read a lot of like histories I think that is the genre I read the most of at the moment is like you know I'll be like oh another biography of John of Gaunt why not let's go let's let's read another dense history of the Romanovs who can like but I love a book that covers like 800 years <laughs> let's get into it um and so right now I'm I'm ca- like fully cackling on the subway reading about the 30 years war which feels somewhat inappropriate but there you are um, but I am also reading um, a novel that I am editing. So I'm also an editor and I'm reading this book called Henry Henry that comes out next year. And it is so good. It is a queer retelling of the Henry ad, like a contemporary read. It's like Patrick Melrose meets Succession meets like Patricia Highsmith. It's like so chatty, people smoking in British apartments. It's like everything I could ever want. Like it's like Brideshead Revisited, but Patrick Melrose. It's oh, it's so good. Um, so that's what I'm I'm cackling about the Thirty Years' War, and I'm reading about British apartments and Henry Henry, which is wonderful. Um, and who I'm rooting for on Jagged? It's a very fraught question. I think, am I? I would like Lux to win because I love her, she's so young and exciting, but I also want her to win All-Stars. So I'm hoping that she, you know, I don't want her to like lose in the first round of like the in, like the inevitable Lala Perusa lip sync Smackdown for the crown. Like, I don't want her to lose first round, but maybe, you know, maybe she'll, she'll slide on. Um, but really the person I really, really, really want to win um, is Anitra. I think Anitra is like so exciting and so dynamic. Um, but the person who should win is probably Sasha Colby. <laughs> who should win? Sasha Colby. Uh, who I would be excited to win? Also Sasha Colby. But the person I, I want to win because it'd be exciting, Anitra. She's she's everything. She is the moment. She is the moment. Also, I think she needs it more than Sasha Colby does. I don't think Sasha Colby needs it. But I think RuPaul needs Sasha Colby to win for the legitimacy of this franchise, though. Because can you imagine? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, the, the I don't, it would be so bad. So I, I think she's going to win. I think it's pretty, but I, I similarly, similarly to you, I would love Anitra to win. Like that talent show number, I, I've, it fun, like that was probably the, my favorite thing I've ever seen on Drag Race, like ever. It was so good. She re, she rewrote the culture. She shifted the culture. Um, however, and to be clear, like, I don't think like they've given it to Sasha Kobe. I think Sasha Kobe like walked in and took it. Like she, <laughs> she is unimpeachable. But what would be most exciting? I think Anitra, like, she's, she is, she is, 
No one is surprised that Sasha Colby came in and like put her heel on all the girls' necks. No one is shocked. Anitra, I feel, is like one of the real surprises of the season. Also, I feel like this season has been so great because it's been full of these like exciting revelations. Like MIB is like really delightful. Anitra is really, Lux is really great. Even Lucy LaDuca is like a fascinating case of like the weaponized BFA, like gone horribly wrong. Like it's so she she's like got a real case of girl interrupted and i love every moment of it um even um blair st Clair 2.0 marsha 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 is amazing like what a great season yeah it's been really incredible and i've just been you know selfishly really happy that people are going home every episode <laughs> it's been kind of like a nice yeah. shake up to things you know to keep keep the girls getting eliminated but um no the yeah stakes I agree feel high the stakes feel high there are stakes in the season of drag race it is not infinite resurrections you do not get respawns in this season yeah i mean i i think it's been one of the best seasons in a long time the runtime you know to, something to discuss there but i've loved it i've been the cast is one of the most memorable in like a long time yeah, yeah, definitely. I still have some older seasons to catch up on, but I saw you occasionally tweet about it. So I was like, I wonder if he's watching the season and I had to get your thoughts. Oh, yeah. so thank you for sharing. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Every week I am like, I never can watch it when it's when it's airing. I always have to like watch it on Saturday morning because I am often somehow sucked into things on Fridays, but it's delightful. I love it so much. It's yeah, it's been wonderful to watch. And this season, yeah, this season was kind of giving. It, I'm sorry, points were made. Um, but no, I, I'm hoping Anitra pulls out the upset, but I wouldn't be mad if Sasha Colby. Now, if Sasha Colby goes home to mit, like MIB, I think we've got to come together as a nation. <laughs> we've got to like, yeah. get, our, get our heads on straight. But I don't know, she's amazing. Every Top four, I love them all. They're all amazing. Yeah, my finger, fingers are crossed for a Sasha Anitra lip sync again. Like, we need one more to close it out, you know? I'm, I'm hoping, but we'll see, I guess. Oh, narrative, narrative. Give us a narrative. Give us a narrative. Um, also, like, those two are, like, Anitra's not going to lose to MIB or Lot. Like, I'm sorry. Like, she, she's yeah. not going to lose to either of those people. Neither is Sasha. Like, I just can't. You know how bad the song matchup would have to be for Sasha Colby to lose to anyway that is with that this is not the Jalen discusses RuPaul's Dark Race podcast um but it is I yeah I can't wait it's gonna be a great episode it's gonna be it's gonna be juicy yeah we'll have to unpack it after <laughs> but yeah I mean what thank you the, for wait, what if in. Ru, what if RuPaul like summons Irene Dubois back oh my god can you imagine I I kind of hope because her fashion, her looks are incredible. If you've seen them on the, online, like they're so yes. good. <laughs> the top five that should have been Irene Dubois coming. Anyway, anyway, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Thank, thank you for coming on. This has been so fun. Truly a dream come true. I'll just be honest. Brandon, you know, I've like been a huge fan of yours for a long time. And so just thank you for coming on. And I hope we get to chat in the future too for future books and stuff. But um, thank you so yeah, much. Please have me on again. It'll be delightful. Ooh.